0: Today we're going to talk
1: about growing with fishes, growing with fishes. Hey everybody, welcome to the growing with fishes podcast episode 281. Um, Today we have a super cool guest, uh, one that I wanted to have on for a while and definitely have been following his work for quite a few years, uh, uh, Jackson Gross from uh, UC Davis. Thanks a lot for joining us this evening.
2: Hello, everyone.
1: Happy to Um, be here. (laughs) Uh, We also have Marty. How's it going, Marty? Pretty good. How's it going, guys? Going well. Um, Before we get started, uh, be sure to check out uh, apmjclass.com. If you guys have any, um, forgot to pull it up ahead of time. We always find some way to botch the intro. Um, (laughs) uh, Be sure to check out the class that Marty and I teach over at apmjclass.com. We have over 700 lectures on aquaponic cannabis, uh, farm tours of commercial facilities, behind the scenes, and all kinds of really cool stuff over there, as well as pest guides, disease guides, treatment guides, and all kinds of other cool stuff. So check that out. We have two live sessions each month, uh, so we can answer your questions uh, firsthand about the class and a bunch more. And it's available anytime, day or night, uh, regardless of where you are in the world.
2: I love that image. That color, yeah. those colors are amazing.
1: That's a uh, Marty. Thank you, Marty's pick. Appreciate that. <laughs> yeah, the you can really get some beautiful purple plants with with aquaponics for sure. Um, but you grow actually some really other amazing purple things. You actually do uh, abalone, which are uh, and purple urchins, which are even crazier. <laughs> um, uh, I really appreciate you taking the time to join us this evening. Um, uh, please uh, tell us, uh, I guess, uh, your your uh, uh, title and then your uh, a fit, you know uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, and what you do.
2: Sure, sure, yeah. I and mean, you're right. I mean, I, I we're growing with fishes, but I grow with lots of stuff. So. Um, so, my name is Dr. Jackson Gross. Uh, I am in the Department of Animal Science at the University of California, Davis. I am the, oh, I guess we have a new title. So, I'm a cooperative, ex, I'm a uh, professor, assistant professor of cooperative extension in aquaculture. Uh, we used to be Uh, Cooperative Extension aquaculture specialists. Um, But I think that uh, people were realizing, hey, we're all professors and maybe we should have a professor title like um, our colleagues. Um, So my role is to provide science support for the aquaculture industry uh, in the state of California. Um, I also serve uh, as the California Director and the USDA Western Regional Aquaculture Center. Um, and um, on the executive board there, um, I also actually serve as the chair of the extension subcommittee. So uh, on the western region, so basically all of our extension specialists throughout the west, um, the western states. We're a huge region, obviously, um, and interacting with everybody around that. So. I may wear many different kind of hats, uh, obviously gr- aquaculture is for me, is growing anything in water really. So whether it's sea lettuce or bib lettuce, uh, or, uh, cannabis, um, it could be algae. It could be, I guess that is sea lettuce, uh, or, you know, from anything from you said like, you know, abalone to, uh, the largest fish in North America, white sturgeon. So, um, I have a, you know, I had somebody one time like, wow, you are really green and the blue thumb. So um, so that's kind of what I do. Um, we, we have a, a 3000 square foot aquaponic farm on campus. We work with producers throughout the state. Um, I teach, a, we have a, a pre-college course in, called Cosmos. Uh, it's in the Cosmos program at UC Davis it's called Future Foods, Sustainable Aquaculture and Aquaponic Plant Production. We teach that. Uh, pretty much in the month of july it's a month long class five days a week uh, with some uh, very bright young pre-college students um yeah i mean i i think i do a lot of things so uh you know very last good. week last you know this week i was on a, a, a abalone spawn next week i'm on a sturgeon spawn uh, a lot of a lot of things we you know a lot of things going on in my world right now
1: um, so why don't you just, i guess start off with tell us about what you're doing with the uh the urchins there, and for those of you guys that want to check it out, he has a YouTube channel which I'm going to throw up here. Uh, this is Aquaculture, and you can also find him on at This is Aquaculture on Instagram as well. Um, sorry, I didn't mean to put the audio on. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, um,
2: well, I'll talk about my abalone work. I mean, that's what. Uh, right now, I feel like I'm on a press junket. Uh, we were in the new york times on print on uh, the 8th and it was on online last week talking about our use of ultrasound technology to evaluate gonad development uh you know the abalone spawn annually and so when we're dealing with endangered abalone for example um you know you'd want to know when the abalone are ripe and ready to spawn and we developed a, a technique using um ultrasound to validate that uh, it's also applicable for you know health assessments and looking at potentially pathogens and metabolic rate so that made the news and um yeah we've been very uh, very busy around that front so um, i have about uh, at the uh, uc davis um, Bodega Marine Lab which is part of the Coastal Marine Science Institute I have about 300 abalone I think out there um, I have a little yeah I guess I have a small little abalone farm and <laughs> we we take we do the same thing right we grow with abalone uh, we, we grow uh, macroalgae with our abalone effluent um, you know dulce and olva um, and uh, we, we also will feed that back to our, our abalone. Um, uh, we're doing experiments around climate change surrounding that as well. So it's been um, that's pretty exciting research uh, that we do out there in the marine in the marine space.
1: And then you also have the urchins in there too, which I thought was super freaking cool. Right. So the you know that work. So so what's happening with
2: that? Uh, and it's it's is that the so out in the ocean uh, the urchins have been eating everything. It's been a big explosion of of urchins, of purple urchins, for example, and in, they've been just mowing down the kelp forest. So, you know, and then add in the fact that there's a warming in the ocean and climate change. we saw a huge, massive decrease in our kelp forest. I think like 5% left of what was, you know, um, uh, at the peak of when we had, a you know, um, kelp forest out there. Uh, and so the urchins just eating everything. And so basically the urchins are empty. And they have no gonad, and um, there's groups like um, cultured abalone down there in Santa Barbara, and we're involved in that at the Bodega Marine Lab. Uh, you know, Dr. Laura Rogers Bennett, uh, and they're evaluating, and other people are evaluating diets and ways to take these uh, native pests, right, and then uh, fatten them up and and sell uni, which is uh, an ex- very expensive, very perishable uh, sushi product. Uh, you know, e- eating ur- urchin gonad. And so, um, yeah, so our lab is involved in that and the colleagues are involved in that. And it's, uh, you know, how can we use that and, and make that into something? So yeah, here's, here's uh, Dr. Sarah Bowles. Uh, we're kind of doing an example of, you know, uh, what we're, what uh, abalone ultrasound kind of looks like, just kind of, a, you know, just like you imagine using for, um, you know, like pregnancies, you know, we could, you can go in and really get a good look of what the gonad looks like and and um, decide hey these abalones are re- they're ready for for to spawn um, you know it's a very stressful you know it's it's very stressful for the abalone uh, abalone don't have clotting factors so if you were to uh, believe you know uh, bleed them um, accidentally injure their foot or something they'll bleed out um, and so We needed to come up with methods to evaluate the abalone without uh, potentially doing any harm to them. So we have tanks, and then we could actually uh, measure the abalone without even touching them. Now, so especially when you're dealing with endangered abalone, and you might only, you know, there's only a couple thousand in the wild. um, You know, can we develop tools to to do that? Here's a heart rate, so we could monitor metabolic rate of the abalone. Pretty amazing.
1: Cool.
2: Yeah, you see that little chili pepper and that black band around the around the chili pepper. So the chili pepper is the the GI tract, but that black band is actually uh, the gonad. So it shows you how ripe it is.
1: Very cool. Yeah, and um, you can also find him over on Instagram, uh, UC Davis. Uh, or, I'm sorry, this underscore is underscore aquaculture. Yeah, yeah. We got all kinds of cool videos as well over there.
2: Now our web page to aquaculture, you know, for the extension page is aquaculture.ucdavis.edu. Yeah. Uh, this kind of these? talks about all the different aspects of our program: the graduate students, the staff, the some of our projects, some of our collaborators. Very cool.
1: Um, so tell us a little bit about, so you were just also talking about sturgeon. Um, I know there's also another one that a lot of people are wanting to do more and more of in aquaponics and uh, aquaculture. Uh, tell us a little bit about that. So you've done a lot of work with them.
2: Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, I don't, you know, I don't think that everybody realizes that, you know, here in California, especially um, around UC Davis, uh, 90% of the uh, North America caviar industry is within an hour of me at UC Davis and it all started here at UC Davis, uh, with scientists, Dr, uh, Serge Dorshav and Fred Conti's, uh, of the world, uh, they, you know, they were pioneering this back when, um, and, uh, they developed this whole industry that currently now exists. And so it's amazing. I, you know, I have this like beautiful charismatic megaphone, and this like amazing fish. Um, you know, I can see them all the time and, and I really enjoy working with them. So the whole industry is here. And so we do a lot of things from working on animal welfare, developing tools to, for welfare in, in systems and tanks um, to slaughter, fish slaughter. How do we you know, make sure this is done correctly? Obviously, when you have a 200 pound fish, that's you know six, seven feet, you know, it poses different challenges than working with a tilapia, for example. Oh, these are endangered pallid sturgeon. Uh, this is in Bozeman, Montana, at the um, U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, uh, Bozeman Fish Tech Center. You know, for my my platform, I get to access so many amazing, cool, cool things and see so many you know amazing industries. Um, uh, you know, fish and or these are just beautiful, beautiful animals. So. Um, So anyway, I do a lot of things, you know, we work on, right now we have a project with the USDA, Western Regional Aquaculture Center. One is develop meat quality, looking at um, how do we increase the sustainability of the aquaculture, the caviar industry, um, associated with uh, different ways of slaughter. So we know that, you know, if you have high animal welfare, you have better meat quality, which means uh, the meat will have a longer shelf life. which is important for sustainability. Which is good for the, it's good for the retailers. It's good for the consumers, right? To have you know, so much seafood is disposed of and thrown away. Um, we have another study. No one's ever actually, in you know, it's almost forty years now. Uh, but we've been spawning sturgeon, and maybe now it's forty-one or something like that. Um, you know, uh, spawning sturgeon sustainably. You know, uh, we're not taking animals out of the wild. We have our own farms or brood stock and we've been spawning sturgeon uh, no one's ever done a, a study with the grow out diet right uh, just because the animals live so long how do you do you know do, it's a very expensive right these are big fish you're know, a lot of water and a lot of tanks and no one's ever actually studied the grow out diet they found a diet that worked and they just stayed with it um, so one of the projects that we're actually doing i'm um, working with the usda um, at the uh, ars in bozeman montana a fish and wildlife service and um at hagerman uh in idaho and then uh with NOAA fisheries um in uh, manchester uh, we're working with scientists and we're developing a, a diet so um and then hopefully that will then lead to even coming up with once we've actually determined the grow out diet then we'll actually start looking at novel you know novel ingredients but you know to increase the sustainability of that industry and sturgeon are great they're great for aqua, aquaponics in the sense that uh you know the, you just feed them and they're really tolerant and you know they they you know as long as you're not too hot um you know they're, they're just going to be happy um and you don't they don't want to be handled so you just feed them and they keep growing and um, you know it's a it, they're easy um you know they're bomb proof pretty you know they don't, they're good with they don't have a lot of disease i wouldn't recommend it for <laughs> I, I wouldn't recommend white sturgeon <laughs> aquaponics for anybody but my industry, who grows them, right? Um, you know, who have all the tanks and have land and space. Uh, you know, yeah, that's you know, we should be utilizing the waste stream from the sturgeon industry to um, produce more food. So uh, it just further adds to the the sustainability of that that industry.
1: Um, I saw you also worked with northern pike in one of your studies. Um, oh, the northern pike.
2: That was years ago. I, you know, um, a lot of my work h- historically had been in the invasive species space. So, um, as my, I'm actually a reproductive developmental toxicologist. Um, I have a very strong background in ecology and physiology, um, uh, and and um, I kind of like border engineering i kind of walk this line between biology and engineering it's 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 uh, i think one of those kind of like my niche i have um, i'm not an engineer but i'm a biologist who interacts with engineers so um so anyway my work was trying to figure out how to save you know salmon runs in alaska for example from invasive northern pike and developing tools around that, you know, Asian carp in the, in the Great Lakes, or uh, not in the Great Lakes, I don't wanna say, hopefully they're not in the Great Lakes, but in the Illinois River, Mississippi River, and that whole basin, uh, and uh, try to prevent them from getting into the Great Lakes. So working with tools like underwater sound and um, electricity, uh, gases, light, you know, whether it's some, of it's, some of it's lethal, some of it's non-lethal tools to uh, change behavior. So, uh, yeah, the northern pike and some of these invasive species, it seems like another lifetime ago.
1: Uh, what about lungfish? Oh, I actually had a question from chat here. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, Mike wanted to know, what's the diet consist of for sturgeon?
2: You know, it's a modified salmon diet, actually. So high protein, high fat. Um, and, it, and so it's just, um, yeah, it's, just a, it's a modified version of that. It's an expensive diet. <laughs> I guess that's what it consists of. Um, so it's
1: sounds like you just need to give them some some curds from the labs, uh, LAB, <laughs> and it's uh, all fat and protein anyway. It's good for it is a good fish food though if you are doing aqu- aquaculture. Um, I, I also saw you did some work with lungfish, which I thought was pretty cool. You want to tell us a little bit about that?
2: Oh, you know, I would say that the lungfish isn't the work I do. I I just have a um, I have a personal interest in that fish you know it's one of my favorite fish so um, though it's a very uh, very emerging industry in Africa uh, people eating lungfish um, aquaculture uh, and then there's uh, species such as the Australian lungfish which is an endangered species and people developing aquaculture techniques to for you know conservation aquaculture around those animals so um, you know that's just kind of a A hobby thing uh you know i have a i have a you know like over a meter long lungfish in the house south american lungfish for that matter so african south american and australian i think those are the there's some subspecies of those but um yeah
1: the south american ones live as long as the african ones because they can live for a real long time
2: i believe they do you know and i don't think they're studied as much as the um the africans oh well
1: because it wasn't i forget how old the oldest one was but it was like 60 or 70 wasn't it
2: i thought they live over they could be live over 100 i thought they're they can get really old Um, yeah they're amazing fish they're uh you know i i didn't realize that they don't have very good eyesight that's been it's uh, interesting to watch my lungfish so but they have really great chemo reception you know good smell
1: okay so the oldest fish currently a uh, lungfish in captivity is 90 years old, and his name is Methuselah, in Australia. It's an Australian lungfish.
2: Yeah, that's a great. You know, they're lobed, right? They they have lobed fins. Those those Australian yeah. lungfish are amazing. It's one of the most expensive hobby fish that you can get on the planet. Actually, you know, they sell for like 14, you know, between 12 and 1,400 dollars for a, you know, a tiny little guy. You know. Uh. Yep. They're it's beautiful great, fish. i I keep threatening my wife I'm gonna get one, you know she's like we got bills to pay, you know should be bringing home more fish.
1: I'll just get that and a platinum marijuana to go with it right
2: yeah <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, you know I, I used to I used to enjoy marijuana, but uh i, I
1: used to I used to breed them I had a huge huge indoor setup oh. at one point way nice. way bigger than I care to admit to <laughs> um. I was trying to pull it up here just so people could see it the marijuana, I
2: had a uh, question
0: about the sturgeon real quick. What, yeah, you mentioned that um, they're pretty much bulletproof except for the high temperature what's the What's the high temperature? What would you consider a high temperature where they they start uh having issues?
2: Well, I think you have different sturgeon, right so we're talking about white right. sturgeon, for example the white sturgeon yeah uh, well, you know it's like once you start getting over 24C, twenty four c twenty f you start pushing there. They're thermal. Yeah, that's the Australian lungfish right there. Yeah, if you start pushing the limits of those, um, you know, stop eating, and you're just not happy. Um,
0: <laughs> it is cool-looking fish. Which one? Uh the lungfish. Oh it's yeah, that the
2: Australian lungfish. Lung yeah, yeah. That's, that's amazing. They're they're so, they're adorable.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's like you want to snuggle it
2: and give it a pet, you know? <laughs> right. I, I use it sure. as a pillow. I'm sure kids
1: would love, they love them. The, uh, in Africa, they'll go along and, and poke the ground. The South American ones, like he has look almost like a cartoon. Yeah. Like, uh, got these spindly little fins for like less <laughs> string arms. That's
2: a, that's a, that's a, that's a South American they're calling it. That's
1: African. Alleg- that's Alleg- African. Alleg- I think
2: that's the African. Maybe I had one of those. Yeah. That's the African. Years.
1: I mean, allegedly,
2: the South American's the one in the green, in the middle, right there in the green. You can see that one Uh, go down a little bit. Uh, One more. There it is with the green grass, tall grass in the middle of the screen. Yeah, that one. That's the South American right there.
1: Got little nubbies. Yeah, just little, 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 little arms. And uh, for those of you that don't know much about lungfish, why don't you tell people the cool thing that they can do?
2: there's some of them. Well, I mean, so they, you know, they're lungfish because they come up, you know, they gulp air, right? So they've given up their gills and they gulp air and kind of like expanding a gas bladder. Um, But one of the really cool things that they do is they estivate, uh, which is basically they kind of dig into the ground. And um, so when the, imagine like a river dries up they will um, form of this mucus coating around them and cocoon in that uh, environment so you know the ground can be bone dry and caked and they're kind of like in this torpor state and this like mucus coating and when the rains come and fill up they they sense the water and they come back up out of the ground and come back to uh, come back to life and um, and continue on their way so they're they're amazing
1: Not only that but they're like older than flowering plants they're older than um uh, uh, mammals they're older than they're oh, 400, yeah. their, their ancestors go back to 420 million years ago they're you know before the dinosaurs evolved they were one of the first creatures that came out of the water so yeah. that, that family is one of the oldest uh, oldest families up there with like oh even older than crocodiles even yeah, yeah.
2: they're amazing they're great they're they're hey, cool they're beautiful animals I'm fortunate, you know, I I get to be around these, you know, cute little adorable, you know, giant sea snails and the red abalone, for example, is the largest of them. Uh, You know, you get these massive abalone and, you know, they look at you with those little eyes and uh, you got these like amazing white sturgeon that are just, you know, and they're a very interactive fish too. And just watching them, you know, which are their cartilaginous fish. um, They're fascinating. Talk about another ancient fish right uh so you got you know i'm working with these like great animals um been very fortunate to,
1: to you know to be able to do these sort of things so, uh you also do aquaponics we've talked a lot about fish and stuff here yeah. um, tell us a little about some of the different stuff that you've done with aquaponics you had a pretty cool study that you worked with on uh, uh, comparing vertical versus horizontal setups mm-hmm. and, and some other things tell us a little about some of the different work that you've done down the aquaponics space
2: Sure. Well, you know, I mean for for me aquaponics is somewhat different, right, than for a, a lot of other people. Um you know, I'm working in an, in a space where we have a lot of fish waste, right? We have tons of waste. Um you know, I can support my 3000 square foot greenhouse with, you know, two or three fish tanks. Right? Um and nutrients <laughs> you know we could grow a lot of food in my 3000 greenhouse vertically right we have that you're my vertical, vertical farming and i mean we can grow a lot of food with just a few fish you know so you know i'm in a space where we have masses a massive amounts of nutrients and um and the water too right so how do we uh, how how can we use that that those nutrients to produce more food and so for example it, it just in the fish space we're talking about you know growing fish is, is, in terms of protein is, is one of the you know um least intensive uh you know con- best conversion utilizing water you know and you know to to produce protein and animal source protein and the world eats fish right um and so um but they're talking about increasing you know while a lot of these other food systems are decreasing you know um, uh you can go to you can see that on the uh, actually the MPDI uh website directly um it's a, it's all online um you know, open access it's an open access journal so I only publish in open access um it uh where was it going? Oh, growing more food, right. So they're talking about increasing fish production two or three times what currently exists right now. And that is a lot of biomass. It's a lot of carcasses, right? I mean, if a fish is, let's say, best case scenario, some of the best fish are 45% filet, right, meat. Um, uh, and so, and to grow all those fish, that's a lot of fish poop and in which uh, you know in a lot of uh nutrient rich water right uh, and um so we let's not waste that right so my interest is like okay how do we how do we take this all this and commercialize this and produce so much more food right so uh, you know my space that i interact is not in, like in the uh you know the backyard growers Um, You know, I'm trying to produce massive amount of foods. And for me, aquaponics is just hydroponic plant production using a biological effluent source. That's it. So it's hydroponics, right? Like, it's just, instead of using a a mineral chemical solution that's sterile, I'm using one that's you know, full of life, bacteria, dense nutrient, dense. Um, you know, a living solution. Then the the nutrients are you know primarily all bioavailable already. Um, and so, um, and so I, I basically will you know using recirculating aquaculture technologies, water reuse technologies. Um, you know, how do we convert that those, those nutrients into this effluent rich? Source for a, you know to produce as much plants as we can, so you know we pro- we primarily practice decoupled aqua uh you know what people would say decoupled aquaponics so um in the study that you're you were mentioning in the uh, the uh, our vertical farm uh, we were working with a, a a colleague of mine Victor who's actually in town he actually he uh it's, it's three years ago he left us and he's actually I he just showed up uh, like a week and a half ago two weeks ago and we're working together um doing some other projects he's an engineer at the University of Seville uh, in Spain and um, where he has an aquaponic farm he's building one on campus there it's going to be amazing um, we, were, we were actually talking about what fish we were going to put in there some of the challenges they have with you know you, uh, farming with invasives is that they would consider um but anyway we were interested in uh, vertical you know comparing the vertical plant production versus horizontal you know on a, just on a horizontal plane and looking at the energy use around that and um and then looking at um you know, leds placement of leds what makes sense in terms of economics and you know one of the one of the most interesting findings of that paper was, is I would have thought that we should have the, the lights should be on the lower shelf, but um, uh, in fact it, it was it wasn't it didn't make sense economically to have lights on the lowest shelf. It, ha- it only made sense to have lights on the middle shelf. It was just uh, when we did when we did, ran the study and looked at the production. So it was quite amazing. Um, uh so yeah that was uh that and the other thing i i think what really stands out in that study, um you know everybody keeps talking about the how much nutrients you need to grow plants, right I mean you know, if you use the u v i model right you know people will tell you a hundred you know was a hundred grams per
1: uh, was it hundred was it a
2: hundred grams per gallon per day or something like that, what is that number?
1: I can't remember yeah what uh, they're yeah, it was something like a hundred grams per square.
2: Yeah, for meter square, meter cube, meter something like that, uh, like for plant production uh, or, you know, or 60 right in there. I mean, if, you know, we're growing basil, which is basically flood and drain for 30 minutes, maybe twice a day, once a day, depending on your environment and the amount of crops that we're producing with so few nutrients using our system uh which which is nothing you know there's no rocket science here but it was just showing like it's so few nutrients to create nutrient-rich crops and it's really just dependent upon how you choose to grow right so and that was another really amazing finding in the study it was just like whoa like i was i was really surprised the um, how many plants you know were growing in this small space with the amount of nutrients that were Uh, We're using um,
0: you think uh, that has a little bit to do with almost everything I mean i've been doing aquaponics for for a while now and almost everything. I think i'm going on like eight years or something, but when I started almost everything was primarily uh, you know baseline by hydro, meaning that uh, you know, looking at it through through just that scope. our our expectation is to use more nutrients than we actually need. So, uh, you know, as we have other studies that come out, like I know UVI came out with one and uh, there's been some other ones. I know Charlie was talking about one last time he was on, uh, you know, showing that you can grow more nutrient dense crops with less nutrients in you know, aquaculture environments um, or even like living soil environments. So I think a lot of that lines up and I think that, you know, only looking at it, through the through the baseline of everything being hydro and how largely ineffective it was with nutrients really shifts our understanding as we move forward
2: right well i mean the other in the other side of it too is that you know that uvi system was not designed to grow lettuce it was designed to grow fish and it was using all the lettuce to, to clean the water right and and um and so uh and so that was, you know, that was the, those some of the first big studies. And so, like, I think those factors, and then, you know, uh, Wilson Leonard and, you know, mineralization and all these other um, uh, techniques um, have come into play to uh, increase, you know, um, to maximize the amount of nutrients in that system uh, to, to cr- produce more crops. So the amount of that you actually need in in the sol in that soluble fraction, um, you know, uh, coming just coming directly out of that your uh, RES system um, is 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 a uh, I guess am I decreasing in there? I, I'm I'm inverted, uh, yeah. So that you you need less nutrients. Whatever I say, I'm trying to invert myself. Oh yeah, no, you can no
1: yeah, you. You can run much slower nutrients across the board for just about, except for mic, some of the micronutrients, uh, uh, mainly molybdenum uh, are is the one exception that, in my opinion, has to be elevated a little bit more, I think, uh, just because of that, that conversion of nitrogen in the plants. But,
2: yeah, but you just add it.
1: Exactly.
2: <laughs> right. Like you're like I'm not I'm not trying to create this beautiful ecosystem and this loop, right? And I'm not sacrificing my plant production, you know, for my fish and my fish for my plants and you know finding this middle ground, right? I want to maximize my fish production. I want to maximize my plant production. Like uh, I, I'm not interested in the middle ground.
1: And that's, I, I always get kind of worry, I think it's funny, people worry so much about aquaponics and trying to get everything out of just the fish waste. And it's like, fish poop is not like genetically engineered for plant production, right? Like, there are limitations to it. That's why I always I always thought that was kind of funny. Right? Um, yeah,
0: or the, the weird sort of perspective that I run into a lot, which is that, oh, well, you know, because you still have to add stuff, then it's somehow not efficient, you know, like I might as well just do hydro if I'm going to have to add stuff. And you're like, well, hang on. I mean, like, first of all, (laughs) like you, why is adding everything better than only adding a few things? That just makes no sense to me. Would you not
2: add anything into your garden in the backyard? I mean, yeah, yeah. I just, uh, this weird
0: expectation that fish food should meet all of the nutrient requirements or it's just not worth it at all. It's like this weird sort of zealot uh, opinion that I run into A lot or or along with the same one, which is that if you're not, you know, everybody has this sort of uh, criteria about what aquaponics is like, if you're not recirculating, it's not aquaponics or, you know, if you, if you use anything, you know, like, Oh my God, people like, seriously, (laughs) how can you be like so obsessed with defining something or like othering people who do anything different than you seems really
2: strange. I was at a scientific meeting. And um, I basically was just talking about aquaponics at UC Davis and what we're doing. And on these farms, massive, you know, working with producers and these huge farms and like, you know, the 17,000 square foot growing space in these farms and our farm on campus and everything. And when I get done, the next speaker goes up and says, you know, as far as I'm concerned, that isn't aquaponics. Aquaponics is like this single loop system. And then he shows that they have three like fish totes full of Like sorry looking tomato plants or something like that, and I'm just like, okay, (laughs) (laughs)
1: I'm like, for
2: your opinion, (laughs) yeah, like like, throwing me under the bus saying, I don't know, like that's not really aquaponics, people. This is aquaponics because we're all in this one loop, you know. I'm like, it's just this narrow mindedness of, um, and, and I think that is some of the things that hold the is why I think the, in my opinion, is why aquaponics isn't uh, adopted, hasn't been adopted so much from this like hobby scale thinking um, and, and application like hydroponics is. If you just said this is hydroponics using biological nutrient solution, I was like, oh, okay. You say aquaponics, I'm like, oh, so it's a hobby people and say, you know, and, and growing, you know, um, and it, all of a sudden it's not commercial, it's not, it's not viable, um, which it's the same exact thing, right? I mean, it's just, it's just funny.
1: I'm a dirty blasphemer. I do a, a hybrid model of both. So we run uh, the greenhouses tied to a sump tank for each bay. And then we have the fish tanks can be routed uh, or more fish tanks or fewer fish tanks can be routed to any single other fish tank in the, or, or greenhouse bay. So if we're in veg, we can have twice as many fish tanks on there to push the plants harder. And then we can cut back, You know, I'll bring one of those tanks and put it onto the next one that's in veg you know, to, to shift that nitrogen load down and, 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 and reduce some of the nutrients. So um, uh, you could also even do hybrids, uh, you know, even of the decoupled and coupled together. And, and um, it's, it's just, there's so many different variables to it that, and all of them produce something, but I think that there hasn't been a, a one of the other things with it is it's almost like cannabis where you have people selling it it's like, oh yeah, it's like a get rich quick scheme where like, if they build this and grow, they can produce all this lettuce and help feel and feel good about doing it and all this, but they don't, do the research on what pro- crops they can actually sell where they're at and that's the number one reason why i see these people fail they might be great lettuce growers but if you don't do the background research on, on you know actual sales portion of it uh, doesn't matter how good you are growing you know that's the other half of it that i see people uh, struggle with
2: you make me laugh because um you know nathan kaufman who's my uh, aquaponic program manager on campus and he likes to call it the lettuce trap and um that you know, this is what you're going to grow and you're going to make all this money selling lettuce. Right. And, and in fact, that was my argument with one of my caviar producers. I was like, you guys are like this, like walking contradiction, like an oxymoron. I was like, you guys are selling this like super craft, you know, award-winning caviar. Right. And then, um, what are you growing? Like one of the aquaponics, like this cheapest commodity, like that well, you can't even sell. And, um, for it, you know, like in, and, you know so they and, uh they say someone says to me well we're we're a lettuce loving family jackson and i was like i was like you know we should be growing basil and using the same jars that you you use for the caviar and we're gonna process that and you're gonna make this like czar you know, i don't want to say the name They're, this 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 uh, <laughs> this like caviar product in the same jars and we're gonna be like hey like like using your label um, and let's like sell a higher up value product that's within your you know business model right this like craft product and make this craft product and um yeah uh the lettuce growing lettuce to <laughs>
0: they're like no give us the lettuce
2: right let's grow, let's grow lettuce and i'm just like you guys don't make any sense
1: yeah, especially with aquaponics, once you get it dialed in, you'll get better uh, flavor production out of your, your flavor producing. That's right? why cannabis lovers, uh, growers love it so much. You get the secondary metabolite production that in some cases is well beyond what Ugh. you ever observe in soil
2: yeah oh it's amazing yeah the basil people when when i brought basil back to camp to my department and they were like what is this stuff and they're like it's just a am- this smell is like so like amazing and then when they're taking it home and putting it in the i was like listen you can just take that stuff home the roots i've left the roots on if you guys want to put it back on, like oh my god it lasts for so much longer than the stuff in the store they were just like what is going on here and uh, yeah this the the you know when we grow basil or or uh, Nathan likes to grow shiso, you know, the Japanese mint uh, and our, you know, the cilantro and man, it's like the smells that come out of there when, when it's really cranking, um, it's like, uh, it's an amazing space.
1: Sure. Um, so what other have you worked on any or had any other, uh, I guess, cool discoveries or innovations in aquaponics in your time there working in that department? Well, <laughs>
2: you know, there was this thing called COVID. And, uh, you know, it's it, it, uh, and they sent everybody home. Uh, and, um, you know, we were actually we were in this we were repeating that study that we did um, it, you know, six months later. So we did that study when it was really warm. And now we wanted to do the same study in the winter to evaluate the energy production, uh, potentially changes in our greenhouse. Right. Our, our you know, because our study is not it's it, you know, we're trying to do commercial scale farming, right? We're not farming in a uh, in a vacuum, in a frictionless surface with a non you know frictionless pulley, right? Like we this is like real world, right? Here's your wet wall, and and here's the here's the, oh here's a vent over here, and it's shading, and this is real world farming, right? So we were like, okay, well, what would it be like the same scenario in in the winter, and uh, we you know we were halfway through that study, and we had to shut it down, so. Um, and then we're just you know in terms of what we're doing um, aquaponics you you know we're um, we're back up and running now you know we're we're gearing up uh, we're actually what the project one of the projects I'm working on is with the uh, California Walnut Board um, we are evaluating nut shell as a alternative media um, for you know hello have you seen the prices of cocoa uh, a coconut core and uh peat moss like uh, can you even get it um i mean that that stuff's um it's a really difficult uh you know um you know, with the COVID, all the supply chain, everything—it's almost impossible to get. Um, so, coming up, especially for California, what do we have? Right, we have tons of this nut byproduct: almond shells, and pistachio shells, and walnut shells, and walnut shells. Like the, the walnut shell is so closely—you know—it um, it's got some other properties that we're we're trying to evaluate how that in, influences growth. But um, yeah, we're really interested in nut byproducts as a um, as an alternative media to use, whether it's like, you know, even at five or 10%, right? Of, of a soil media, you know, um, or, you know, even 100%, could you use that instead of rock, right? Instead of, um, so what are the properties of some of these nuts, um, these nut byproducts, and can we use them as an alternative uh, media uh, in, you know, especially when we're going to be really in trouble with, the you know, we've been, you know, coconut, core is, you know, uses a lot of water and it's, you know, it's coming from India and some of these other places and, you know, the greenhouse gas and the carbon footprint around that. So, you know, what do we, what do we have in California, we've got a lot of nut, (laughs) a lot of nut biomass that, uh, you know, that's been sequestering carbon and it's got a lot of nutrients in it. And, um, you know, can we utilize that as a a soilless growing media. So we're in the middle of that study right now. and uh, we're just we're we starting the basil trial, which then we'll move to to the um, to lettuce, and then onto um, a tomatoes. So,
1: do you um uh, have any? I'm sorry, do you have any issues with heavy metals or anything like that with any of the nuts? I know that certain you know nut trees and stuff can have some pretty funky chemistry to theirs. Is there any you have to avoid or or anything or um, are you strictly using just the one species at the moment or?
2: Right. Reason that right now we're using English Walnut and then we'll go to almond and pistachio. Um, I don't think that's that dense in the shell. Right. Um, and so, uh, you know, if you're talking about my seaweeds, yeah, I'm really concerned heavy <laughs> metal in my seaweed, uh, culture, um, uh, but uh, I don't. I don't think it's that dense in the shell. It hasn't been something that I've been that concerned with. Um, you know, my actually PhD was the effects of heavy metals in amphibian reproduction and development, and so I have a lot of background in heavy metal uh, toxicity uh, work. Um, and uh, I, I'm not that concerned. Um, you know, obviously, if you're at really lower pHs, right, you're causing the you're the the Heavy metals to become solubilized, and that certainly are going to be taken up by the plants. Um, but uh, and I think it's more your source water is probably going to be your biggest, you know, your, your biggest issue. Um, I don't know how much of that is once it's bound up into the shell. I and mean, the shell is pretty dense. Uh, you know, how it's, it's going to leach? I don't. I haven't seen. That's a great question. I, I'm going to have to look. You know, is there different shells? And it may be a function of area too, right? Like, you know, are you using? Are using Colorado River water? Are using well water? What's your you know? Where is your source water? And you might find differences in um, that. But I just I don't know. I can't. I'm, it's, I'm trying to think. Do what I expected in the shell or not? Um, I was just I, I don't I was, think so. You know. My guess is no. But I could be completely wrong.
1: I was just thinking, apple seeds are famous for having cyanide in them, so I, th- I just figured that some of the nut trees might also have a similar type compound. But maybe I'm way off. Well, case. you're talking
2: about the you're talking about the seed. I'm talking about the shell of the seed, right? Sure. So it's a different, you know. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't, I don't, I don't, you know that's a good question. Uh, I haven't. My initial gut is I'm not that concerned, but. I can be completely off base.
1: I did a, a quick search just while we were talking on Dr. Dukes and I didn't actually list any in Walnut shells. So, yeah. I don't know if you're familiar with the Dr. Dukes database It's pretty good for that kind of search stuff.
2: Oh, okay. No, I'm not familiar with that, that base. Yeah. Here, I'll actually, I'll throw it up
1: because anyone that doesn't know about it, it's a great resource. Uh, if you're trying to uh, learn about plant chemistry and anything, uh, they have a huge thing. So this is, through um department of agriculture uh, and you can search any kind of plant but here's okra beautiful. it has all kinds of the different compounds and you know by ppm and all that stuff it's pretty pretty amazing but you can also use it for nutrients you know you can see calcium and and the Mm -hmm. fruit versus the seed and all that stuff so if you're making composts and all kinds of stuff oh yeah
2: yeah I mean I'm lucky I mean I'm at UC Davis right I mean there's like world <laughs> experts like I just pick up, I go down the hall I go to the next building over you know I go up the stairs I can find I find somebody to you know uh, I could harass somebody uh, and and then the whole UCA and R you know the which is kind of like our ag campus for the state of California UC Ag and Natural Resources and you know all the amazing scientists spread out across across campus, uh, across the state of California and the UCA and our campus, which um, yeah, just amazing resources that are at my disposal. It's it's, it's criminal.
1: What are some of the other uh, additional um, research projects you're uh, looking forward to in the future here and stuff you got in the works or maybe there is in pre-works uh, uh, it at the moment?
2: Well, I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, one of the you know, I'm on I'm in the UC Davis Cannabis and Hemp Center. Is it like hemp and cannabis? I always do it backwards. Uh, and uh, what am I? You know, again, utilizing that aquaculture effluent, you know, directly on the farm, um, and to grow more, you know, to grow, you know, whether it's medicinal cannabis or hemp. Um, and so we had started. Uh, one of my farmers had started a, a small little pilot scale project. Um, they just. Anyway, I'm hoping we could do that over again with some, a little bit more guidance, uh, and um, and so yeah, so there, there's a lot of I'm really I'm really interested and excited about that space, uh, you know, growing more products, especially with my aquaculture my farmers, and all those nutrients that we have. So, you know, I'm really interested in, um, reap, you know, at larger scale, you know. Um, uh mineralization I call it suspended growth aerobic digestion which is kind of like the wastewater term you know water treatment term um and then you know utilizing our that effluent coming off of our 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 fish systems um and then you know the other thing I'm really interested in is the um the emulsion fish emulsion hydrocylates and everything like that uh you know digesting that I'm trying to um, I, you know, I have to follow up with some of these people who make some amazing enzymes here in California. And you know, we have so much, you know, all the carcasses, right, all these byproducts and from fish processing. And you know, most of that just goes to rendering. I mean, it's a shame, it, it's like not only not does it go to rendering, but you're paid to take it to rendering and then you pay them to take it and render it. And it's like, oh my gosh, like we, we you know, we need to do something with this. and and you know get it into people's hands that are interested in you know you know i mean we're surrounded by you know ag i mean this is like these nutrients are uh and yeah so you know these type of amendments that they could be adding and putting on fields and and you know whether it's cea or fertigation, um or you know or just like flooding fields you know I mean, it's just like i i know that some of my producers, you know, when they try to when they do a water exchange, you know, they flood their neighboring cornfields and the corn is like massive, right? It's like, just sucking this stuff up, you know? So yeah. there's some really cool projects in the work and there's some really exciting technologies I'm interested in exploring. Uh, a colleague of mine, he has, um, you know, these bio columns. And I'm really interested in, in seeing uh, how that performs versus some other ways. Um, I, you know, I, I I talk to Nathan all the time. I really wanted to explore some of the barrel, the circular systems, uh, large systems. Um, uh, Some of that stuff is becoming better, more feasible for actually commercial growing versus, you know, um, you know, some of it I think is just people selling product. You know, like engineer building something because it looks cool and but it's not really applicable to farming. Um so that's some of the you know, so there's some cool technologies. Actually I have a couple of ideas on um, you know, I, I'm not I, I'm trying to be low tech, right? I, I, I um I'm not I don't want to be in the one percent space. I'm really trying to be in the small to medium scale farmer space because you know, people could produce a lot of food um in that they have the they have the land and, and training them and so um, I think when I start, you start going into the, you know, all the AI and the sensors and all the technology, and, and it's just like these high end greenhouses, which, you know, require, you know, hundreds of thousand dollars just for permitting fees, right? Um, so how can we get to these spaces faster that, you know, how do, how do you go from, I want, I want to start doing this to, I'm actually farming, right? I'm actually growing food faster. Right, and I, that there's a huge gap in between uh, of how you can get there. Right, you can get there a lot faster, or you can, you know, be, um, you know, in permanent permit hell and building these extravagant, you know, anime, you know, animated, <laughs> automated uh, facilities. So, um, so those are some of the things that really excite me. And uh, you know, i I'm, that now that we're coming out of COVID and the nuts. You know, that nut stuff is just talk about sustainability. I mean, it's it, to me, it's a, it's a huge thing. I think we're gonna need that. I mean, to me, it's further developing the, that byproduct. you know, looking at the, you know, focusing on downstream things, you know, uh, I mean, upstream is really important too, mind you, but, you know, we have all this stuff downstream and then how do we bring that back? How do we bring that back into the fold? Um, that's kind of, those are some of the things that excite me as I start looking at how are we gonna feed the world in the next 20 years? Right I mean that's the scary part, um and so that's where my my head's at right so um because that's we're gonna need some big thinking uh to to do that, uh, and we're not there you know we're we're far away so
0: i uh, I grew up in very far northern California up in Siskiyou county along the Klamath river um you know my father's from uh native side of my family, and they've been doing a lot of work, the, the tribe, um, so the Karuk and Yurok tribes up there have been doing a lot of research, obviously, in the um, in salmon areas. Do you guys do any work with indigenous tribes in the area down there in the work that you're doing?
2: Um, n- I'm not, not that, uh, um, you know, I've, I visited with um, a couple tribal groups. Uh, here, you know, they're really interested in obviously ab, you know, having their coastal lands and and farming seaweeds and and growing abalone, uh, and obviously sturgeon were a major cultural part of their um, uh, of their lifestyle. Um, so I we haven't been, and you know, that's something I miss. Actually, when I was in Montana, I was, I was actively engaged in the American Indian Research Opportunities Program there, and and I had a number of students that were, uh, you know, from reservations coming to college and, and then doing research. And um, I was very, very active in that when I was at Montana State University. Uh, and I, you know, I wish that we had more of that now. Um, I wish I you know, still had that uh, part of my program. I felt that was very, um, uh, I, you know, as much as I was like, they were benefiting from me, you know, I was, I was enriched by that experience working with them as well. So, uh, so much so, uh, I think one of my four, you know, we used to go to the powwows with my students, and they were dancers. My, my, my oldest is like, when I grow up, I want to be a Native American daddy, (laughs) you know, and I I miss that aspect of our lives. Um, and I wish uh, we were had more uh, interaction with that the tribal groups here in California. So um, I'm hoping that's going to change with some of the the projects, um, and we're going to have some tribal uh, uh, representation in some of our aquaponic classes that are coming up, and trying to put some of. Um, I recently applied for a grant to uh, take. You know, we were funded on this project, a uh, Western uh, SARE Sustainable it? Sustainable Ag Research Extension. What is it? Is someone look see if we would you look that up. SARE. I should know this. A uh, Western SARE S A R E. Um, and we were funded to develop a train the trainer class um, on aquaponic plant production. And so we're gonna have like six classes. We're about to uh, advertise for this actually. And so um, the idea is to train educators, adv- county advisors, things like that, to um, you know, have like an online six week online class. It's like an hour and a half. Uh, and then um, And then they'll come to campus for, Two to uh, two to three days for like this, you, know, you know, intensive. Like, how do you seed? Here's the components of recirculating aquaculture. So I'm really go through it. Like, here's aquaculture. Here's you know, RES. Here's you know, here's NFT. Here's deep water culture. Here's here's how to build a wicking bed. Um, all these things, right? So when when they're asked in their communities, it's not some foreign topic, right? Um, and so. We have recently applied for an uh, internal grant to take that class out on the road, uh, and so to uh, throughout the state um, where we have uh, these uh, research extension. UCA and has these research extension centers, and so what we want to do is um, make this equitable uh, and and go to these locations and, and the communities and have them pe- people come to us. You know, so we go to them, but now we're at these lo- locations where people can um you know they don't have to worry about missing work or you know all these you know uh, uh sure. so do a road show um, yeah, so we're hoping really to cool. do that
1: yeah you know so, yeah. I, it was
2: a long it was a long answer to your question <laughs> <laughs> that's right. i
1: appreciate it <laughs> we had a question from chat can you tell us more about the cannabis program there
2: um you know, there's uh, some really amazing research, you know, a lot of, like, I, it's, there, there's so many different, like, I, you know, uh, there's so many different researchers doing so many different things from, from social, to legal, to nutraceuticals, to uh, application in, um in like veteran the vet school for medicines for animals to can we use the hemp to feed cows uh, you know the after the, once we've extracted the oils from it right I mean there's so much stuff um, you can go to, to the UC Davis uh, the hemp and cannabis center <laughs> or is it was the other way around uh, and um, and you'll see a list of all the different faculty and all the different people and the industry involvement. Um, and so, uh, I think I'm one of the few people who actually like do growing, um, though there, there was some stuff in a field uh, recently or the other year, but they're not really, we're not, we're not really trying to, we're not supposed to be doing it on campus. I don't think, I don't think we're set up for security, that sort of some of those like higher end security stuff. It, it, it creates a situation. So um, I'm, I think there's going to be a lot more interactions between faculty and industry. You know, we're, you know, I mean, for example, like working with, you know, you guys, right, your commercial growers, and so they will be more apt to wanting us to work with, you know, you directly than you coming to campus. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, it's just like too much to discuss. I, there was a seminar today on, um, I can't remember what it was on, um, but. Uh, yeah, there's there's so much amazing work that's being done in this space. So uh, one, some big grants were gotten re- that were awarded recently, too. So I don't know if those have started. So but you could go to that that center and, and find out, get a lot of information.
1: One person I'd love to introduce you to and who's going to be on our show here. The the last Thursday of April uh, is uh, Danielle. Ma- 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 Make sure I'm pronouncing it uh, Maitland. Um, she's working up at Aquilitas and doing a lot of studies with soil, uh, compost, composted soil, like living soil, but with aquaculture affluent and, aqu- and uh, hydrolysate and a couple of others uh, against each other in terms of yield and quality, you know, uh, uh, COAs and all the rest of it. So
2: oh, That'd be cool. That'd be cool to see.
1: All right. I can send you some of their stuff uh, offline. I'm happy to kick that over. Yeah, That'd be great to look at.
2: Uh, you know, I mean... I was hoping to have a graduate student last year uh, start who is uh, who did a did a cannabis program or medicinal cannabis program I think at Western Wash Western is that Western Michigan State University I think it was and he ended up going to Cornell and I was like oh he's such a sharp young man and um, so I really was hoping to have him start uh, his uh, PhD with me but they, they made him such a good offer I was like you got to have to take that <laughs> <laughs> I was like, um, but I, you know, I mean, I, um, so, you know, I'm, I'm hoping maybe next year, uh, in the next group of, uh, I have some amazing graduate students coming in this this next year, but um, the next series of applications, hopefully I'll have some, somebody who wants to do more cannabis and, and hemp work. Um, I don't have anybody really like Maximizing my greenhouse and my RES system and in, in the aquaponic space. So, I mean, it's been mostly undergraduate uh, working in our space. So, um, and it's great for them. You know, they get something like Nathan uh, to interact with them and working on projects and learning. Um, but you know, it's like that, that that uh high, um, the higher end research that you're gonna get where graduate students are like you know, lasered in and what they're doing, I'm, I'm, you know, I still haven't, I haven't had a couple students in that space yet. I don't think they found me yet, so, uh, but I'm looking for, um, hopefully, we can land some grants and uh, bring in some, some students who want to do that kind of research.
1: What are some of the most common myths or misconceptions or things you think people understand wrong about larger scale uh, aquaponics and, and RAS?
2: Um... Uh, Common mis—I uh, don't know. I mean, what would I say? The common common misconceptions. I don't know. What What do you think? I get, uh, um, get you know, kick my brain into gear. Like, what 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 would you? Where do you sit on any of that? Um, I mean obviously you do ras um you know i think the technology i think some of it's the technology makes me crazy um you know you have to have this like these all these bells and whistles and to really get going and and we just did a, i just did a ras video on the four components of um of recirculating aquaculture system uh, um and i just i think i posted it last week i just start uh on my youtube channel and um it doesn't have to be like it could still be slick without being high tech and having these high-end technologies um you know i, I think uh there's a there's, there's a lot of ways to to win you know um uh, but uh it's yeah i don't know, I don't know if I, anything I guess I'm so far into it that I I don't know like uh, uh, like what is a common misconception I don't know it's like uh, I mean I teach that maybe, stuff so
1: maybe uh, is there anything that you do differently than than maybe the average aquaponics person that you think is needs to be you know done like for instance Marty and I push uh, potassium silicate and calcium carbonate as the best combo for pH up for plant health mm-hmm. um, what what that's a little bit different than what most people do but it works really well and I can explain to you all the reasons why. Um What, what are some of the things gotcha. that you kind of figured out along the way that uh, you think need to be kind of, you know, consistent through, throughout?
2: Um Okay, well, okay, so with RES, like, just first of all, it just when I think RES, like, everything to do with RES is, um for me, everything starts with, like, animal welfare, right? So I do not... Like they think that I could just like feed my fish junk and they eat, you know, they could eat their poop and I can like just have poor water quality and feed them, feed them, feed them and all my plants. And so that's one of the things that makes me crazy, right? Like um, is uh, in in looking at these RES systems um, is the animal welfare. And animal welfare is an important thing for me. Um, I I know that it's not a popular thing, uh, but you know, Fish have feelings, you know. <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean, if you've been around fish, like, and you live around fish and work with fish, right? I mean, it's like, and not all fish are smart, right? So, like, I don't you know, like, you know, for me, salmon are stupid, carp are brilliant, <laughs> you know. I mean, like in general, like, but so there's, there's this the spectrum. But you know, for me, animal welfare is. um is maze is very well and I should say salmon aren't stupid in the sense I mean think about what they do right they go out of the ocean they come back to the same place that's amazing yeah you know, so I don't mean it that they're stupid in, in that way like they're they're amazing animals uh, I don't want anybody to say Jackson thinks that salmon are like this like you know. I'm like no let's <laughs> you know you should have the right sound bite um
0: context matters right
2: <laughs> thank you thank you right, right. yes context matters. Uh, so, so animal welfare. So, one of the things I see all the time is poor animal welfare. Treat your fish kindly, you know. Uh, enough water and and removing, getting the solids out of your system. Uh, and so that that's like I think one of the big misconceptions is that you could just like, you know, you're gonna get this tilapia and these many tilapias or goldfish and you're just gonna like. Beat them up and and it's all great. So that I guess that's one thing. But the uh, I think one of the things that's amazing to me that I found um, and I want to explore more at is that that um, at the rhizome level uh, at you know the roots. Yet we so focus so hard on the pH of the water. Right, you gotta have this pH of five point five, and you know and and like you know throw all these chemicals in up and down. But is that really what's important? Because like, okay, well, I take it back. If you're growing deep water culture and your roots are sitting in that water column, it's important, right? But like, if you are using any type of growing medium as well, like we we maximize, you know, we use media, we use kind of like an NFT, and deep water culture all together. Like we're, we're trying to maximize the, the optimization of all three of those in one system. Um, and so I like to have some kind of media. And so uh, what i found is that the, if you measure the pH actually in the media, it could be very different than the actual pH of your source water um, and your, your, your nutrient water. And so, like, we spend so much time worrying about this other page, Well, like, how many people are actually measuring the media? And and what is actually, what is happening at that root, water, soil interface, right? And so, you know, especially if you're using, like, peat and other things like that, that are part of that, uh, like, IHORT or wool or, like, all these other things, like, that's where you need to be measuring and knowing what the pH is not in your source water right um, i mean your source water is important to make sure that you're not you know precipitating things out right and and um, you know you're making sure that you're in that good you know nutrient profile so that everything's available but i mean the reality is is like that's where that's where all the absorption that's where the rubber meets the road where all the action is I think those are places that um, I think there's a lot of misconceptions that people so focus on, you know, getting this pH to five point five. But what's happening at the root is really interesting. I mean, you know, I mean that's stuff you you have to see when you're looking at cannabis, right? I mean, it's like to maximize, you know, flowering and all the all the properties of some of these like plant secondary metabolites and and everything. It's you know, that's, that's important. So I think that's a misconception, I think, and some, an area where I think more research needs to be looked at.
1: Oh yeah. And that's something that's nice about if you do have, especially if you're going to run berries, blueberries, raspberries, you can run really acidic soils in a, in a dual root zone or a wicking bed pot, still feed it with that aquaponic water. That's a little bit higher pH. It, and it works really wonderfully. You kind of merge the two. Um, and, and when you have a, a little bit of that soil layer, you have those, Microbes, you know, causing those they're you know different secondary metabolites, and you can stack them along with the aquatic ones and get, you know, even more. Especially with cannabis, you know, you can really boost those terpene levels, uh, well beyond what you can get with just soil alone, which is super cool.
2: Have you have you explored a lot of that? I mean, have you played oh, yeah. with uh, so the, actually measuring the soil, the you know, the the uh, versus? yeah? so the,
1: when you when you look at the media in the dual root zone pots, if you actually. Take a, a measurement out of that uh, in the bottom half, or even in even a big media bed. If you actually test the the water, the pH in the media bed when it's flooding and all that, it's actually slightly lower than the main system. When the interaction with all the microbes or whatever, there is a noticeable difference. But you have to have it, you know, one that does to a second decimal point to see it really well uh, on, on any of them. But th- there is a noticeable, you know, lowering of the pH. Uh, and remember, and it's something I always think it's funny when people think about, oh well. Why did the aquaculture stuff work so? Well? Why does the aquaculture um, microbes survive so well in, in soil? Well, most of your microbes in soil are living in that little damp layer around those different particles, you know, in the soil. So, well, that's per, it's almost identical to the water, right? It doesn't matter. The microbes don't care if it's this thick or you know a foot deep. Like as long as it's wet, it's fine. As long you as know. wet
2: and they get oxygen, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, I, I think I'd like to see. I, I think there's a lot of space there um and even like in i think there's like that you know i think the the buzzword is the microbiome right i think there's so much research and potential in even like selecting that microbiome that you're going to put in there i think it's part of that's you know that's part of the future you, you know is it 10 years away is it five years away i you know i mean is it is it is it closer I, I don't know i imagine that I and mean, there's a lot of people doing a lot of that kind of work right now um, like these bacteria you know concoctions that they're um which also is really beneficial for like you know reducing pythium and all these other you know molds and, and you know the out competing those the negatives you know so
1: really uh, I'd like to see more of that. Of, uh, we're both big fans of um, Korean natural farming. So we use liquid IMO and lactobacillus in our systems. It works amazing for increasing <laughs> mineralization, uh, increasing system health. Uh, there's some of Marty's stuff.
2: There's some deeper, um, d- d- uh, 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 <laughs> dual root zones. I yeah. can't talk anymore.
1: Marty, you want to tell us about those? Actually, Marty, show them the side-by-side with the... the. I think it's a couple picks over in that same... There you go. Uh,
0: Yeah, so let's see. Uh, Yeah, right here. So um, this isn't varying pH at all, but this is uh, varying amounts of um, nutrients. So particularly varying amount of uh, phosphorus and potassium. So uh, this one here, uh, it basically isn't supplemented at all. It's just worm castings in <clears throat> sitting in the, uh, in a dual root zone pot. So it is a dual root zone. So they're all, you know, uh, so those are the two things that I was experimenting on this particular run were uh, varying the nutrients and the size of pot, uh, mm-hmm. to try to narrow down what, what type of setup, uh, that I wanted to run. So that's, uh, um, and so e- each row got a different set of nutrients and then, uh, different size pots in each row so that was kind of how we tried to run two different experiments at the same time but uh, but this is kind of the the classic setup you can see um, (laughs) I'm experimenting with different ways of um, you know achieving a full canopy so this plant is trained over this way and this plant is trained over that way and then one pops up in the middle Um, so this can actually if you have a bedroom that can support this method then uh, this, um, will fill up your canopy much faster than other training methods that I've found that, um, uh, and this is just low stress training. So there's no only accidental super cropping in this <laughs> particular environment. And so here you can see, um, you know, like, uh, these are some of the different, um, seeds that we're running for, uh, Look at you know, that green,
2: that, that's some green right there
0: yes and uh and you can see here you know kind of the size of a a single leaf beautiful and so we we had uh this particular you just had giant uh fan leaves so just kind of give you an idea of the growth potential but um but yeah this this was the the nutrient side by side uh so not measuring um uh like ph or anything but this is um you know we were we controlled it by uh, mixing the soil samples separately so we all started with the same base and then um, mm-hmm. amended them with different amounts of uh you know langbonite or whatever we were using for our amendments we varied their amount per per pot right. and mix them up and so here you can see the the dual root zone set up and um yeah so I, I pretty much only water them twice uh if it's a seedling If it's a clone, usually they come out of the aero cloner and go into a dual road zone pot and you get stuck into an aquaponics system. So, uh, you know, trying to be highly efficient and just a a small setup, I just have a 20 by 20 flower room. But yeah, that's kind of the the high level view of of my little system. And then here are some previous ones uh, that we did as well at the old location before I moved.
2: Yeah, uh, I, I think, I think, I think, I think so much work is, you know, is still left in that root zone
1: to do. Yeah, I, that <coughs> I think that- they... Look forward to with COVID, you know, the all the rapid DNA testing and all that stuff is gonna allow us to rapidly DNA test our soil and, and you know, plant surfaces and all that. What's interesting is there's a, a ton of nitrifying bacteria that are on the surfaces of leaves that you know nitrify that, or pull nitrogen from the air and then it drips off and gets into the roots. And there's so much stuff that we're just barely starting to understand with the biomes of these plants. It's so amazing. And I'm sure the fish are the same way as well with all the different microbes on them. And we just we're just starting to understand all these different interactions. It's kind of a cool time to to be in this particular science.
2: Yeah, the, 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 the I mean you know you could you could figure out what invasive species is in your water by Measuring the microbiome because, like, their poop is going to be their bacterial emissions are going to be different than some other species. You know, Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah, we're 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 barely at the cusp of this. It's exciting. It's exciting time. I mean, I don't do that research, uh, but I mean, I love it's it's fascinating research to me. So.
1: You also have that invasive species one that had something to do with cancer research or comparing cancer research for invasive species.
2: Yeah, yeah, that was was just comparing or, you know, really, it it was the idea around that was showing how, how we don't apply like these models of cancer biology and, and, you know we basically kill ourselves, like trying to get rid of a cancer, right? Like is what we're trying to do. But we don't do that in like cancer of the ecosystem, right? It's like this Band-Aid effect. and we don't really ah, oh, we'll see, We'll wait and see. And you know, by that time, it's like too late. So um I so it was comparing that, that 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 paper, was just kind of comparing the or the the differences and and the approach and how we don't apply these organisms which are cancer uh, and, and you know the, if we only apply the same way to human health um, as we do the environmental health um, we'd be that much farther ahead, because you know, so that's what that paper was about.
1: Okay, great. Was well, there, um, uh, I don't want to tie up your whole evening, but is there anything else you wanted to tell our listeners, uh, I know you have some different stuff coming up here soon and uh, anything else that you wanted to, to let people know about.
2: Uh, anything else, um, let's see, what's, uh, you know, we're working with the California Department of Food and Agriculture on um, antimicrobial use in aquaculture, and we're are trying to understand, um, you know, we're helping to provide them with information on that space in, uh, in California aquaculture, which is not a lot, by the way, California, we're, we're very fortunate compared to some of the other, um, the other uh, like other countries, the importation uh, stuff, so are really, really low. Um, And we've learned to uh, control our water, reduce our densities, do all these things to reduce our need for um, antimicrobials and not California agriculture. So we're working on that. We got a product, we got a project around that. Let me think Uh, I told you about the abalone work, you know, one of the things that we're really interested in and we're doing some work on and so I mentioned that the abalone. And and utilizing the waste stream well what happens in a climate change scenario in our oceans and how that influences the nutrient profiles, so we knew we know a lot that well yeah I mean we more CO2 in the atmosphere right we have increased plant growth but. Is the plant. Like it has the same nutritional level as it did when it was lower pH, right? The the physiology of the plant and the uptake of what's going on with it, and so same thing in the ocean environment, right? And so when you have increased ocean acidification, um, and warming, um, we're seeing that there's alternate, you know, these changes to the micro algae. Um, which is like your phytoplankton, and then your macroalgae, which is your seaweeds and kelps. And so the organisms that eat that, like our abalone, um, they're seeing are, are they eating, getting all the same things that they need to see? Um, and how is that impacting them as primary consumers of that? And so we're studying that in the uh, so we're doing pretty much aquaponics, right? We're raising plants at different temperatures and different pHs and, and, and we're looking at um, and util- utilizing our effluent from our, our culture systems, our, our abalone culture systems. Um, and then feeding that back to our abalone and looking in, in our larval or juvenile stuff, we're seeing that there are effects, uh, downstream effects on our organisms. And so um, we're hoping, um, especially like working with the you know, the black abalone, uh, recovery and the white abalone team and as even the farm you know pretty soon we're gonna be talking we're gonna have the same conversations about red abalone here in california soon with the you know with the lack of kelp forest so you know are we're gonna to have to do these mitigation measures that we even do already with um, uh, culturing oysters um, oyster larvae because ocean acidification is so uh, impactful um, to to them, you know, be able to put produce shell, so um, we're doing this very the same thing in the marine environment, and you know when we start looking at kelp forest restoration, uh, you know starting you know, kelp forests and getting them out there, and how are we going to restore these environments? And I'm um, doing it, so all these skills they're all transferable, right? Um, it's just these different systems. And in some ways, it's, well, the science is conserved in, 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 in these different areas. And so um, that's another project that's something that I'm very fascinated and interested about. Um, and uh, let's see, is there anything else I'm missing?
1: Um, we, had a, we had a chat question. Um, can yeah. you do any um, non traditional or, or less traditional uh, uh, species you recommend for freshwater aquaculture? Non traditional. Yeah, maybe like non tilapia, non goldfish, maybe non trout.
2: I mean, I mean, I have some favorites that. Uh, I mean, I mean, you um, mean, for California, are you in Cal? I guess the, the, the we'd like to know if that person's in California or not, because that might def- depend on how I answer the question. So, uh,
1: we'll just assume they're not in California. I guess. Uh,
2: okay. So if you're not in California and you're in a warm water environment, I mean, I think there's. Um, you know, because California, you know, we're always trying to, they're trying to avoid, you know, non-natives and, and everything that's in, in the aquaculture space. Um, and I, I think there's some great candidates that uh, aquaculture, uh, you know, paku, you know, tambaki, which is um, kind of like a white, kind of a whiter color paku. Uh, uh, maybe it's a black paku, I can't remember, but uh, not, not the red belly, but it's, uh, I think that's a really great aquaculture candidate. Um, Black
1: ones grow crazy fast. They'll grow like three feet a year. It's all, it's nuts.
2: Yeah, and I think that you know, also on the on the aquaculture side of it, um, is that they the way their bones are structured too, so they're somewhat bony. Um so I think that's a great candidate. Um an interesting candidate for for us. Uh, you know, tilapia, you you know, you think that tilapia we figured it out for tilapia, but I mean, um, so we have a video around um uh, uh Alarkin Root made a tilapia video and his PhD was on looking at like salt tolerances around tilapia and it was amazing his work um is is really fascinating and how tilapia really you could culture these tilapia in in marine systems and so as as we start having more um you know places where you know it's land-based systems, but we got like salt water infusion and all these things and these uh like you can grow tilapia at really hot you know certain species at really high salinity level so i don't think the the book is out on tilapia yet um i think we're just beginning to see the, the advantages of that organism um and feeding people and the quality of of food um there's there's some significant benefits you know it's not a mutant fish that lacks scales and bones that you you see on the Facebook. Uh, It's a, you know, if, if it's fed, you know, good quality food and good water. And I mean, it's a great aquaculture product. Uh, which is also good for obviously for reasons for aquaponics Um, you know arctic char is another one that's in some of the cold environments it's a great aquaculture candidate hard to get the embryos that's one of the problems with them but you know really high density they like to grow at high density they actually prefer to live at high density Um, good food conversion ratio uh let's see is there any other uh freshwater aquaculture that stands out to me i have one but i'm not going to mention it but it's it's uh it's a very big fish uh so it's got its challenges being a high you know requiring some of these some of the times these fish require high protein diets uh, and so um you know you're always looking for candidates that are a lower trophic you know lower trophic candidates versus like these high protein candidates
1: is, that, um, is it a arapaima or uh
2: arawanas? certainly not arowana you know uh arapaima is an interesting fish just because so much meat comes from it but again it's a it's a significant carnivore you know yeah. um uh you know so i mean like those fish like you know are pre- you know big predators right requiring a lot of protein and so i, I think. And even though they are, you know, especially like, you know, arapaima and, and I, I mean, think arowana, you get really like 45% protein, I think, uh, filet on that fish, right? So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, fish like that, you know, I, I think they have their place, but I just don't think they're the best, you know, like not long-term sustainability, at least, uh, you know, until we've really cracked the code on, on you know, alternative proteins for, for aquaculture. And I think when that changes, um, you know, you know, some of those candidates could could be very fascinating. Um, but yeah, the tambaki is is a the is, is a great. Nathan wants to, us to do Korean barbecue paku, uh,
1: you know, ribs, you know. So um but had barbecue paku ribs. It's good.
2: Have you really? Oh yeah, I so I, told, I, I, I like I like to do that. Is it good? Um, know, that good? You know, there's another. Another, you know, some of the other candidates that, you know, I don't think we've, um, that potentially to be explored is, uh, and I don't think we've fully developed the tools from it, is like uh red claw crayfish, right? Like, you know, they're big escape artists and there's a bunch of other problems with having them. But again, uh, I think that as hatchery systems and disease and... Um, uh, and and really like mac you know really cracking that code. I think you're starting to do that in Australia. So I think some of those organisms can be a good aquaculture candidate. Um, and I think under that line of reasoning, um uh, I think you're starting to see some changes in even like freshwater shrimp you know production and aquaponics aquaculture. You know you can make a living you know some of these indoor shrimp farms. That's changing. Uh, the technology is changing on that. So those are some of the Interesting developments, um, I think. Um, you know, as I throw out my ideas.
1: Yeah, shrimp waste. If you mineralize, remineralize it, in and in a, you know, decoupled, Obviously, because of the, they're not very uh, tolerant of most nutrients uh, in the water. But uh, if it's a very good affluent for plant food, it's much more balanced than fish food. It has more phosphorus and more, uh, you know, other things in it all that stuff bound to chitin right like yeah it's, it's and a, then you get you, you you take that and you you ferment it in like lactobacillus or something like that and you get you know it basically it's like instant instant chitin is when the plants you know pick it up it's it's really really good for building up those plant defenses and making your plants nice and strong
2: hmm. yeah i would imagine i i think there's you know as we as we start getting better and better you know it used to be that you couldn't grow shrimp in california and dr fred conti worked on shrimp you know forever and it was like and i think you know he would he would have said like every every 20 years it comes this this idea of shrimp in california comes around but i i I, I honestly think they've started to crack the code a little bit on it, and it's increasing. I mean, growing it in India, I mean, I, I mean, Indiana, you know, I mean, I know they're growing in India, but they're growing in Indiana, you know, in like warehouses. And I, I think, um, you know, obviously we have some disease issues, we have to manage a little bit better. Um, but uh, yeah, I think even small indoor systems, and, and like you said, utilizing the, I mean, there's a lot of Waste, right? All the all the molting, the molts, and all the other stuff on the shrimp and crayfish systems. So, um yeah, it's uh, my new graduate student. She is from Sri Lanka, and she's an expert at uh at shrimp culture. She's you know, so I don't know if we'll we'll dabble in it as she she comes on, spends a few years with me, but um it may be fun. You know, I, I, we'll see what she you know she's excited about. You know, as uh, as as she progresses through her graduate study,
1: yeah, we had a guy in the one of the aquaponic groups I'm in. And, uh, actually, our Facebook group, uh, Aquaponic Cannabis stores, uh, and he was doing that with, had a bit of a whole bunch of, um, I forget what species of, of uh, crayfish it was, but he was taking all the waste off the bottom siphoning that out, putting it into a mineralization brewer and then growing, uh, you know, a set of six plants with it. And he, man, they, he had really good numbers on his water and really, really nice growth on his plants. So, you know,
2: yeah, there's you know. a lot that shell, that chitin, all that stuff bound in there is a lot of great nutrients. Um, I, I think uh I think you can make a living, you know, if you you know, with a small farm and growing, you know, USDA specialty crops and selling crayfish. Uh I mean you can make you can make a decent living in that space. Um you know, like and not be caught in that lettuce trap. Yep. <laughs>
1: Well, thank you so much for coming. Uh, do you have any last thoughts you wanted to mention before we wrap it up? Uh, I'll put your um, your links up here on the screen again.
2: Uh, yeah, uh, aquaculture.ucdavis.edu. That's just kind of our general webpage. And, uh, you know, it's like a first place to just kind of, okay. Um, and, you know, our, our role is to provide science support to the aquaculture industry uh, and commercial growers. I mean, I do take, Calls from people and you know public sector, uh, but I mean, can you imagine like if everybody in California was like you know an aquaponic grower was calling me for advice? Like I would, <laughs> I would never get anything done, right? Like it's just uh, it's not, I try to slight the you know the public for on this. I was just you know it's it's not really my role. My role is you know to um, serve the the stakeholders around the aquaculture industry. Um, and, uh, and then our YouTube page, which, you know, we're just a, over a year. Um, this is aquaculture and, you know, I'm just telling aquaculture from my space, uh, which is aquaculture is not just, a f- you know, fish farming. It's, and, you know, we cover every, we cover a lot of stuff in my world. Um, so uh, I think I have a unique perspective and, and, and access to a lot of really like you know, amazing people and, and California is so unique in its aquaculture, uh, you know, the specialty crops that we produce. And so, you know, it's a mix between extension, you know, we're working on a video like we uh, on preventing polyploidy in sturgeon to detecting polyploidy in sturgeon, or to draw blood from fish. Uh, you know, we have that video on aquaponic food safety, kind of summarizing the USDA uh, food safety uh, initiatives around aquaponics, uh, you know, for commercial production. Um, so it's a mix between, you know, I'm trying to have a fun stuff like dissection videos for students and, but uh, higher end stuff for uh, outreach. And then more like extension, you know, uh, which is, you know, basically sharing, extending knowledge, um, to people. So I kind of try to do a balance of, of those kind of activities in my YouTube channel um you know how to make caviar you know uh best you know uh, sure. i'm in the caviar space like so i never i couldn't i would never imagine the, this kid from like you know cleveland is like i'm i'm in this bougie caviar world you know and now i'm i'm like putting together this I, the ideas on the caviar processing manual right my predecessor created the hatchery manual for white sturgeon and now i'm i'm like you know i'm i'm like fluent i caviar you know like how did this happen you know <laughs> so um but uh yeah i you know i get to eat caviar regularly it's it's, it's weird um but uh yeah i mean it's got both conservation you know and, and you know, sturgeon conservation came from this caviar industry and what we know about protecting sturgeon and, and bringing them back populations came from this industry so you, you know it's not like uh it's you know it's only one-sided right so, um, our, you know, there's a lot of same thing with the abalone world, the commercial and the conservation, you know, blend and mix. So, um, anyway, uh, yeah, yeah. that's, that's what I got for you.
1: You had a good two weeks.
2: Oh, no.
0: Did I
1: lose you? There we go. Sorry did I, about
2: that. Did I lose you? What happened?
1: Yeah, my internet died on my computer. So <laughs> I'm not sure it didn't. just going sort to of wrap it up. I was just going to say, uh, uh, I bet you uh, really want your price of caviar really shot up uh, uh, with all these sanctions to Russia. So,
2: yeah, I don't know what's going to happen. That's really interesting. You know, the tariffs in China and, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah I mean Russia doesn't produce that much caviar they They poach a lot of caviar actually <laughs> uh, um, uh you know Poland has got a caviar farm, and you know you're you're always worried like you know there's war, what's gonna happen to that group you know and um yeah, so I don't know it's uh but i mean that's you know that's the buy. You know, with these wars, you know, you're like these these places, and you know these people, right? You know their family, you know, they're like their families. You know, it's like somebody owns a farm, but you know they have fifty employees, they have fifty families they're feeding. So it's it's um, your heart goes out to them. You wonder what's what's happening over there. That's so scary. So, yeah, I think uh, caviar. As long as the terrorists, as long as we're not flooded by Chinese caviar, which, you know, they, they, China produces 50, more than 50% of the world's caviar now. Um, know that. Yes, yes. And, and they, it's a, it's a, it's a Chinese sturgeon beluga hybrid called Kaluga. It's not even a real fish. They just made this fish and, um, and they crank out. And so they they basically were trying to flood the U S market with the caviar. And um, and undercut our prices and everything because they have so much of it. So the tariffs saved their butt here. Um, so you know all this. These people are willing to buy the cheapest caviar instead of like support their own California, you know, U.S. industries. You know, cutthroat. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hope. I, I hope. I, I mean, I hope people had fun. You know.
1: Um, oh, yeah. We had a blast. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Um, uh, please, everybody, uh, uh, go follow uh, uh, him over on his, um, uh, This is Aquaculture, and uh, you can check out his work. He's got a, a whole bunch of, I think you have 32 white papers, I'm sure is me right? Say it again? I think you have 32 white papers that you've now, uh Oh, I don't um, know. I don't
2: That's, it's. Yeah. I am I'm, I'm interested in impact. How am I changing? How you know my I'm trying to save the world. Yeah, you know, that's my that's what's important. You know, cool. I have friends who have you know a couple hundred papers. You know, so I'm not a big, uh, I'm not as prolific as some of my colleagues. But you know, ho- hopefully I, I'm I'm prolific in my impact. That's what, that's that's my goal. <laughs>
1: Well, I very much appreciate you taking the time to to come on the show tonight and uh, educate our listeners about uh, all the wonderful things going on and uh, the education that you're working on and uh, all the ho- super cool research. I mean, I, know I was absolutely blown away when I saw your abalone video and just thought that was so, so, so cool.
2: Yeah, well, let's, let's hope we can save some of these endangered species. The, the more people who talk about abalone, the better, I think.
1: Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us this evening.
2: You're welcome. Thanks for having me. Uh, yeah. I look forward to interacting with people.
1: Awesome. Well, uh, I'll be in touch. Uh, uh, take care.
2: Excellent. Good night.
1: Thank you. Take it easy. Uh, and you guys can uh, find him at this is aquaculture uh, on YouTube and on Instagram. I apologize. I do not know what's up with the internet on the computer right now, um, but uh our internet seems to have died. Thankfully, we always have a backup. Uh, we will catch you guys uh, next week. Um, I can't pull up the thing right now to tell you who's on next week. Uh, we will have a show. I think we have a show on Monday and on Thursday next week. Um, also, don't forget Thursday is our uh, six-year anniversary next week. Uh, and we have uh, Mr. Green from iGrow Chronic Videos will be joining us, So which is the first guy I ever watched video uh, content on, so that'll be super amazing. And um, what else do we have? I don't remember who's on Tuesday. I think it's the Rooted Leaf, uh, if memory serves me correctly, uh, on the 14th, but I could be wrong. Um, I'll have to double check on that. Um, also check out Fumadoro.com. Uh, he's got a bunch of awesome seeds. He was in chat earlier, um, you know, show him some love or check us out at Fumadoro on the flavors on Tuesdays, Wednesdays and Saturdays. Uh, you can also check out Marty at AP meds, uh, if you want to see more of his work and you can find me at potent products on your favorite podcast app or on YouTube or on SoundCloud or iTunes or all the things. And we will catch you guys again on Monday.